Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. This show is presented to you by Guest Lewis Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our new website at gaslitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are myself, Robert Port, and my partner, Millie Baumbush, and we're talking about do the estate want our, excuse me, do the children want our antiques, personal property, and your estate plan? And now it's time to introduce our guests. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Roger Kirschenbaum shareholder at Roger A. Kirschenbaum, PC, and Spalding Nix, owner of Spalding Nix Fine Art. I'd like to ask each of you to give us a brief overview um, of yourselves and, and your work, your practice. We'll start with you, Roger. I'm an estate planning attorney. I draft a number of wills and trusts and deal with clients' wealth management. Uh, in this regard, uh, planning for distribution of personal property, both while alive and after death. And Spalding? I am an art dealer with a law degree. I work as an accredited appraiser with a lot of attorneys in the death, debt, divorce business. I like that, the death, debt, divorce business. <laughs> Alliteration. Yes. On, 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 uh, I, I guess that's where uh, at least a few of us around this, or maybe all of us around this table make, make our living. Let's, let's start the conversation this way. Um, as, as our intro indicated, our show talks about wealth, managing wealth, transitioning wealth, preserving wealth. And, and one of the things that interested us in, in addressing this topic a discussion about the the value of these personal assets, as we said, you know, do the children want our antiques? I thought we'd we'd start with you, Spalding. If you could sort of walk us through what you see, given your uh, role as an appraiser, in terms of what's happening with the antique, I'm um, sorry, you know, the antique market, the personal property market, particularly with respect to how the differences between, if you will, the greatest generation, the baby boomers, and so on and so forth, how they're all dealing with these assets that people accumulate over time, which may or may not have the values uh, attributed to them. Well, today we are going through a seismic shift in taste. The greatest generation, they were great collectors. The baby boomers loved to buy beautiful things as status symbols, as trophies. This next generations, these next generations, the Generation X and the Millennials are living much less formal lives and therefore are not interested in most of the personal property that was highly valued by their parents and their grandparents. So for the first time, we have a generation that does not want what their parents and grandparents are offering to give them. So what does that mean? We have the baby boomers downsizing, um, looking to get rid of some of these things that they paid a lot of money for. There's no demand. So we've got lots of supply. We have no demand. And that can be a real shock to baby boomers, your clients who are starting to downsize and plan for their estate when uh, they realize it's going to be very hard to get their children to take on these items or to get any money back out of these items. I had a little preview of that. I heard you speak at one of our bar functions, and uh, I remember you uh, 
putting on, on the screen a picture, I don't know if it was Architectural Digest or something like that. One showed, you know, a very formal dining room with the chandeliers and the nice wooden chairs. And the next one was a very clean, you know, straight lined and, and not to knock Ikea, but sort of Ikea looking stuff, very few paintings or things on the walls. So, and, and that for me was a visual that really brought home, if you will, sort of the disconnect between the generations on that. Well, think about most homes from 20, 30 years ago, you walked into the house and there was a formal dining room. There was a formal living room. Nowadays, most houses are being built without dining rooms. They're being built with this large floor plan where the kitchen sort of spills out into a family room and there's a eating area. Well, if that's the case, then what happens to all that furniture? What happens to all those items that were in those formal rooms? If the kids can't use them in their new homes, they don't want them. You think if you remove a dining room from a house, that means you've got dining room tables, sideboards, crystal, china, silver, all those things that we use to entertain in those spaces suddenly have nowhere to go. And that's why the value for those items has plummeted. So when you're dealing with these situations with families who are looking to you for an appraisal and probably have in their mind, we're going to get, we're going to get a big number here and you come back at less than a big number. Talk a little bit about how you deal with that, the practicalities of that, and maybe any suggestions for people who may have to be dealing with this either right now or might see that they're dealing with it in the future. The problem is that most people are used to seeing what they paid for it, even 20, 30 years ago. They're used to seeing these items possibly scheduled on their insurance at replacement values, which often don't reflect current value because things have changed so much in the last five to 10 years. So they have a number in their head that is way, way up high. And when they find out that their ungrateful children are not interested in taking these priceless heirlooms on and into their lives, they take that next step, say, well, let's dispose of these items. What do we think we can get? Um, that's when we're looking at fair market value for these pieces. And often it is a quarter to 10% of maybe the number that they had in their heads from when they purchased these pieces. So there's a lot of therapy that has to be done to get them to sort of uh, lower their expectations so that they can make this leap because it's very painful to find out something that you may have paid $10,000 for, you're suddenly lucky if you can get six to $800 for. So we do a lot of handholding, we do a lot of walking people through these numbers and again, talking about taste and where we are today, how much things have changed. So it's definitely a learning curve. And some people don't want to listen and they say that, well, everything is cyclical. It will come back. We're going to throw it in storage and see what happens. And I, I, I don't recommend that. Roger, are you seeing the same kinds of issues in your practice when you're working with families and doing estate planning? Absolutely. I think there is a shock value um, when you're dealing with families who may be in the midst of downsizing and then are trying to figure out among their children or grandchildren what they want, who might want their items. Uh, and then they find out that their families don't really want some of the things that they felt were expensive and things that were acquired. I'm going through it after my mother passed away. She had a custom made China cabinet and we've been trying to, to sell it or get rid of it. And it's in storage. And fortunately I have a storage facility for it. 
in Florida, but it's been there for two years. And uh, we're ready to donate it or do something with it just because it's sitting there doing nothing. Certainly in my, knowing the, and experiencing what Spalding is talking about, I wasn't surprised. My brother wasn't surprised. I think my sister's a little surprised. So we have those situations in place. Trying to plan for it, and you and I spoke about this before the show went on, is trying, maybe trying to get the family together in advance and seeing what the children actually want and care about, regardless of value, and then making some plans for that and then realizing that the family is not going to receive probably full, do- what they expect is full dollar value for those things that are not going to be taken by family members. And I, I think we've all, in, in dealing with families and estate issues, we've all experienced sort of the conundrum between having things that are passed down at full value versus things that may have minimal monetary value but have huge sentimental value. That's a big issue. I know you've experienced it in your practice on dispute resolution. And when you have something that is of sentimental value and there's only one, Mm -hmm. and what we find often after somebody passes away that three children have all been promised the same single item, it doesn't work. What I often recommend to clients, especially older clients whose children are adults, is have a family discussion and get it out on the table. Uh, one of the planning issues you have is that when you draft wills and you try to do things and say things that the children are, are supposed to get things in relatively equal value, then the question is who resolves a dispute over who gets first choice, how that process might work. And you often find that the language in a will says, well, the executor will resolve the disputes tends to be that the executor is one of the children and who has a con- sort of a conflict of interest in making that decision. And, and I often recommend to clients that they, uh, while they're alive, that they be the dispute resolvers in, in those circumstances and get it out on the table. And if there's going to be some grumbling, let the children grumble in front of you and then resolve it and try to make everybody happy. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Millie Bombush and Robert Port from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking with attorney Roger Kirschenbaum, shareholder at Roger A. Kirschenbaum PC, and Spalding Nix, owner of Spalding Nix Fine Art. Let's uh, focus a little bit more on this value question. And I'm going to ask about appraisals, which is where you spend probably all or most of your professional life. And, and then we'll turn to Roger in terms of when appraisals are, are needed or necessary with respect to, to estate planning. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that insurance value, the insurance, what an item is insured for may or may not be realistic as the market changes. So I'm, I'm wondering, in your practice, what different times do you see appraisals coming along? certainly for estate situations, but presumably at other times along the way. And again, talk about the different inflection points as to when people have this realization as to what may or may not be going on with respect to the possessions they've accumulated. Well, I think it's real important for owners to have lots of discussions with their insurance company often, really find out exactly what's covered at what levels 
do they need to go beyond homeowner's insurance and have specific items scheduled? Sometimes people are way overinsured on the homeowner's side and there's no need to have items scheduled. Sometimes people are way underinsured. They have significant pieces of property and all these items need to be scheduled. Think about where we were five, eight years ago. Values went through a real fall during the recession. They have crept back up. So if you had your insurance was from 2007 or 2010 or today, those values have changed so much. It's been quite a wild ride. So it's important to keep those items up to date. If you have significant items, fine art, you know, high-end antiques, then every two to three years, especially right now while things are in flux, it is important to have those numbers at least looked at. A lot of times, basically, they're just adjusting for inflation. So if you put $10,000 on something in 1990, you can only guess what that number might be today. It could be twice that, while at the same time, antiques have been... I know the uh, Financial Times last week ran an article in, in, on antiques, and they said 18th century French antiques are at half what they were 10 years ago. So you may have these numbers that are creeping up, while in reality, the values at the retail level are going down. So what, you, what you're saying suggests to me that there are really at least two components or, or results of getting the appraisal done. One is it, it may change the owner's assessment of value and potentially net worth mm -hmm. at a very bottom level. And and the other aspect of it is uh, it may suggest that either more or less insurance premium ought to be paid. So, uh, you know, there's there's potentially either a benefit there or, you know, a, a risk protection aspect to, to getting that done on a timely basis. And then when we do have these death, debt, divorce situations, disposition, it's really important to, to determine what type of value really want to use in order to make these decisions. Is this going to be fair market value as defined by the IRS? Is this a, a taxable estate, which has very specific rules about its definitions of value? If it isn't, then how does the family want to value these items? Some families want to use that replacement value that they've seen for insurance. That's a fair line in the sand for them. Other families want to know, well, if let's treat this as if I have to get cash out of this, what can I, what can I really, really get? And that number, you know, can often be much, much less. If we're talking at the estate sales level at an auction level, what can we expect to bring home? So it's real important to have those discussions with your clients, especially if it's not a taxable estate. How are we going to value these items? What does the family want? To, how does the family want to look at these pieces when we're um, trying to fairly distribute them after we hit one of these three Ds? Talking about fairly distributing, there are a lot of different ways people can do this. I mean, they can draw straws. You know, we can just sort of go around the table and everybody pick in rotation. What kinds of real practical advice do you give your clients, Roger, about how to sort this through? Both parents have now passed away. We've got a house full of furniture and we've got three kids. What do you tell them? I mean, the first thing I want to do is find out where they agree uh, and try and get that off the table. What are the issues that it's clear that some children want something and others could care less about having it, but may just want to start seeing where things start to equalize. And I hesitate to use the word equalize because fair and equal are, are different concepts. But I do find that most families get hung up on equal, try to avoid it as much as possible. But if you can get that off the table and also get rid of, because I know we're talking about antiques and other things like that, 
but also dispose of that property which nobody wants and maybe could be donated to Goodwill, uh, a homeless shelter, a battered woman's shelter, the things that I've seen done and, and think are valuable things for families to do, forgetting about the tax aspects of charitable donations and other things. But I agree with Spalding tremendously is that you've got to have a methodology that everybody agrees on, and it may differ from item to item. Certainly, I know in my family, when my, and I said this to you before the show, there were a couple of pieces of art that my parents had. I happened to like that art. My brother and sister-in-law didn't like it, and my sister had no room for it. Uh, we tried to auction it off and, and do it by going through some galleries, and, and we had a reserve amount on it, and it didn't happen. But the galleries also appraised it for insurance purposes at a certain value. Fortunately, my siblings and I were able to agree that I could buy it for a certain amount that reflected the reserve that we had agreed on. That was a good situation and fortunate that I have siblings that were willing to, to work on, on that. You hope that that's the best way to go. If they don't, I guess that's where you come in on dispute resolution and how to do it. And, and the question is, is it worth that kind of litigation adversarial mode for certain items? But I, I would start with trying to get the family to agree on a process. Whatever that process is, stick to it. Well, we've all seen, um, if you have to move into litigation mode, the question is whether it's worth the process. And I think all of us have heard of cases where the legal fees exceed the value of the property that we're actually fighting over. And that's not a good result for anyone. Especially when it is that sentimental item of property where the real dollar value is not significant, but the relationship of the parties to that item is high and everybody feels that they're entitled to it and they're not clear. One of the things, and I know we're talking post-death, one of the things I recommend pre-death, and, and the more you can do pre-death, the easier it's going to be post-death. If you have a significant amount of prop, personal property in the house, You've got cell phones these days. You've got video ability. I often put in a will, leave a memo or something else behind as to what you want to allocate to a specific person. But I've recommended a number of times for clients to go through the house with a video camera into each room and, and every place and identify that property and identify who they think should get it regardless of value. Then lump the rest of it in to be divided as as I said, I hate to use the word equal, but as fairly as reasonably equal as possible. Spalding, I'm focusing on the valuation question again, without putting you in the position of, of being a predictor, obviously some things are up and some things are down and taste change and whatnot. My own sort of anecdotal assessment as a layperson is that things from cultures that are increasing their, the country's moving up in the world, China, Russia come to mind. Those seem to me, you know, from a guy who's sometimes when he's channel surfing, spends a few minutes on, on Antiques Roadshow, things like that seem to, to be increasing a little bit. And, and also talk about things like, and Roger and I talked about this just yesterday, things like gold coins, which can sometimes end up in the investment side of things, sometimes can end up in collectibles. I'm a former stamp collector. I think that's a, a sort of a dying breed. I don't know that my kids even know what a stamp is. So maybe if you can 
put a little bit more detail on maybe, uh, if you will, where you see the market going and, and just sort of the themes you may see as, as uh, you undertake what you do on a daily basis? Well, there are hot areas of the market. It's not all doom and gloom. Contemporary art, 20th century art has done very, very well. And you'll see incredible headlines of what Picassos are selling for at auction these days. Um, you're right. Russia had, a, especially when oil was at much more than $20 a barrel, uh, there was lots of money to be spent in Russia. There was a lot of new money being made in China. They collect specific things, and those things sort of went through the roof. Chinese spending incredible amounts of money to bring back items that had been made in China hundreds of years ago, uh, spending amounts of money that were unheard of five, 10 years ago. Jewelry is doing really, really well. Fine wine doing really, really well. Millie will be glad to hear that. Yes, both of those, the jewelry and the wine. Uh, automobiles, classic automobiles doing really, really well. So there are these parts of the market that are doing terrific, especially the 1% is really interested in. These are the, the new status symbols. Problem is with everything else. So what happens to all of, if it's not mid-century modern furniture, then who wants it? What happens to all of these antiques? We were always told they're not making any more of them. The value is only going to go up. But again, with this change in taste, suddenly antique furniture, older 18th, 19th century paintings, old master paintings. If the market's not there anymore, then those values are going to slide. And so what's, I think, hard for people to wrap their heads around in is, again, this idea these things are old. They're not making any more of them. There's a limited supply. But if the demand falls down enough, the value is going to fall too. One thing to remember is since the Victorian era, I mean, every time you got married, what did you get? You got China, you got crystal, you inherited antiques from your grandparents and given gifts. So we have about four or five generations worth of stuff that has all accumulated and is now piled up onto the baby boomers. And the baby boomers are turning to their children. And for the first time, the children are saying, no, I don't want that. So that's, that's the dilemma that we face today. A, a visual that you painted at the presentation I attended was you, you referred to a piece of furniture, you know, a Louis the something probably. And you said, you know, someone who really knows this stuff, you know, thinks it's wonderful, but the baby boomers get it and they paint it purple. You know, it sits out in the foyer and they throw their keys on it and otherwise trash it. And, and again, that, that really painted for me the distinctions between the generations and how that stuff is addressed. Well, this latest generation of the millennials and Generation X, they're more interested in authentic experiences. They feel they have very little time to, to add the responsibility of taking care of these antiques, of having to polish these antiques or this silver they're putting their hands up. They're saying, we, we don't have time for this. We don't uh, have space for this. We don't lead these formal lives anymore. I don't want to have to worry about one more thing. So I'm saying no. And I think that is uh, very hard for parents who think they're being generous and gracious and they want their children to carry on this family legacy with an heirloom, perhaps. And it's very disheartening and, and jarring for them to hear their own children and grandchildren saying no. I don't know anybody that wants the pink and gray china that's uh, sitting in my laundry room at the moment. Right. You know, I, I had an experience like that myself uh, when we got married. Uh, we, we had an opportunity uh, through my wife's uh, 
grandmother to, uh, you know, acquire some some older pieces. You know, Spalding, you'll probably be able to visualize what I'm talking about. You know, the heavy wood stuff, which is very nice, but you know, it just didn't tickle my fancy, if you will. And and so I I've, I've sort of experienced that firsthand and, and can identify with that. Roger, let's let's talk a little bit about something that um, actually you pointed out uh, to us, which is something that you you actually generally can't put a value on, which is things like family pictures and things that have sentimental value but no real monetary value. And talk a little bit about how, in the planning process and maybe in the estate administration process, you what issues you see and and how those are addressed. These days with family pictures, it's, it's a lot different than it was 20, 25 years ago or, or more. Now, at least if, if there are other resources, some of those items can be scanned and distributed almost in a digital way to family members. So it's, it's a lot less significant in, in a technological era as to those things. The sentimental stuff, I'm big on transparency and planning before. I know, you know, and I, I do address my experience because my parent and working with my parents because they knew what I did for a living. And I remember 15 years ago, my father asking me what I wanted out of his particular property and his watches and other things and mentioned something specific. And he was a little bit surprised that I was more than happy to let my brother get a, an expensive watch in, in exchange for something that I felt was more sentimental that had a family meaning to me. So that's generally the way I do it. You're really not going to solve a problem when there's, as you and I spoke about one, yesterday, one Tiffany lamp that everybody seems to want. Uh, you're not going to rotate it on holidays and, tr- and ship it to different people. The lamp was subject to a child custody order. Yes, uh, something like that. It, it's it's difficult to do that, and, and, and there is no way. Or... Uh, any other item like that. Again, I go back to as much of, of advising clients to to be proactive and plan and not wait to allow the children to have a dispute over, I think, you know, I think about the, the public's uh, Thanksgiving commercial where you see the salt and pepper shakers of, of pilgrims and, and that that might be a sentimental item that somebody wants. It, it's hard. You can try to put in a will, as Millie mentioned before, a draw straws as to who gets priority in a rotation or something like that. Uh, Or you just have to try to maybe convince your clients to mediate over several items. If there's one, I really don't have a good answer for that. It's you're going to create family disharmony. And if you can avoid that by Again, I've, I suggest family meetings or something in advance so that you can mediate any disputes before it happens, you're better off. And the value of what you're suggesting is that instead of the parent making assumptions about what somebody wants, my son wants this, my daughter wants that, and this is what they're going to get, as you in your own experience described, you know, if there's that communication there's there's a greater likelihood that that the bequest will will actually meet and satisfy needs and reduce the possibility of disputes if you're going to if you if you know or think that there's an item like that and and again we've all experienced uh, as planners and and estate administrators that situation where there's one item that everybody says well mom 
promised or grandma promised it to me and that likely happened, you've got a problem because no, it's going to create a hard feeling among the family members. You can never totally avoid that. We know that siblings try to get along, but maybe never perfectly. Uh, we'd like to think about perfect families and nobody, is, no family is perfect. But the more you can figure that out and figure out those trade-offs in advance as, a, as the senior family member who's likely to leave these things behind, then you can resolve problems. You can minimize the future irritations and, and ill feelings by solving the problem in advance. And so I'm much, I'm very much a pre-plan approach than wait at the back end. Uh, I have seen wills where the CPA or the attorney is appointed as the final decision maker on any disputes over property. I don't know that I want to be the one to do that. I'm going to, then everybody's going to be looking at me as the bad guy, but that's, that's happened. Spalding, have you ever seen any situations where, and you couldn't do this with a Picasso or something that's truly unique, but you know, there's an argument over a Tiffany lamp. Have you ever seen any situations where you try and find in the marketplace something essentially identical? Obviously, the one that grandma had that everyone knows she had is going to be different than the one that's, that's essentially at least physically identical. Have you ever seen a situation where have you ever been asked to do something like that, sort of get a duplicate, for lack of a better word, to try and ameliorate some of these issues about folks arguing over a singular, to them, unique piece of property? I have seen that a lot with sentimental items, where we have a family portrait that has very little resale value, but there are eight grandchildren that were all promised it and they all want it. And something like that, it actually has pretty simple solutions today. Um, I've done this a few times with families. We'll take that portrait, have it scanned, have it printed on canvas, have it varnished and stretched, put in a nice frame. And I've been to, uh, I've been asked to go to family parties, basically, where we hand out eight paintings that you can't tell unless you've got a magnifying glass out, uh, which is the original and which is the reproduction. I have a vision of you sort of like mixing them up on the table, like the shell <laughs> right. game, so, so nobody knows who got what. And so that, that can solve a problem very effectively. Problem is when you do have an item, an ex a valuable item, like a Tiffany lamp, that cannot be easily replaced. And that's where value becomes so important because you need to be able to put a value on that Tiffany lamp that all the rest of the family members who are not going to receive the lamp are comfortable with. I have been to court where one family member has challenged my opinion of value for that item. All the rest of the family agrees that the fair market value that I came up with is the appropriate value, but we have one person who just can't agree, can't believe it that that's the number. It's very sad because these other family members were no longer speaking to this sibling all over uh, an item that was worth, you know, a little over $100,000. And in the end, we had to call in experts from New York who agreed with my original number. So it was really all for naught. So coming up with a, a system, a, a solution where all of the family members feel comfortable with the value assigned to that one item is what's so important when you have those situations where everybody wants that one piece 
at least they can feel comfortable knowing that they're receiving a monetary value that is uh, fair between everyone in the family. Years ago, I was with a law firm, and as I recall, there was an argument over a Tiffany lamp, and the lawyers jokingly said to each other in private that they're just going to hire someone to make a good replica, switch them around and say, here, you know, each of you have your Tiffany, go figure out which is the real one. You're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Millie Bombush, and I'm Robert Port from the fiduciary law litigation law firm of Gas Lewis Frankel. We're talking today with attorney Roger Kirschenbaum, shareholder of Roger A. Kirschenbaum PC, and Spalding Nix, owner of Spalding Nix Fine Art. Roger, I want to get back just briefly to photographs, which you mentioned before. I think the um, when we think about people who are our grandparents or even our parents' age, most of the family photographs actually exist in physical form. They're in frames, they're in albums. With Gen X and with the millennials, and I know with my adult kids, they don't have any photographs that aren't on their phones or on their computers. What do you advise younger parents, uh, younger people who come to you in their wills to do about digital assets and digital photos? I think we could do an entire show on that, but just in a couple of minutes. Uh, in a couple of minutes, that is an emerging area of law that is, uh, and I think you were might have been at the presentation that I was at regarding the law on digital assets, and that unfortunately, because those things may be held within software programs and passwords, that it is very difficult to transfer digital assets at the moment. I don't know that I have a good answer, and yes, we could probably do a show on it, separately. Uh, certainly, to the extent that you can back up some of those items into hard drives or other things and make those available, which I don't think people do often enough, probably the better idea because then the, the asset is the hard drive, the backup hard drive that can be po potentially copied, distributed to uh, family members as best possible. It is you know, as far as photo albums, yes, you can take the physical items and scan them and, and do that. But the things that are on a computer or on a phone become much more problematic, difficult to deal with, at least on a legal matter as to whether somebody is entitled to the passwords to get to them. So I guess the only answer I have right now is back those up to a hard drive that could be where somebody is going to have access to it. And what about um, another sort of very practical issue when you've got actual physical things, items, and, you know, mom or dad has passed away, those things are in the house. Sometimes it takes a while to go through this process of distributing them. Who, what happens to those things? If the house is getting sold, who ends up paying for storage? Um, who ends up paying if one of the siblings who's inheriting lives across the country? Who ends up paying for the delivery charges? How does that all shake out? I've had that problem uh, w with a client. It's certainly drafting in most of my wills a specific provision in the will that says storage and delivery charges should be an expense of the estate, so an obligation of the estate. I had a major dispute with the executor of a will whose friend, and she was the friend of, of the deceased. The deceased in her will left the personal property in the house to her niece and nephew who did live outside of Atlanta, this executor refused to pay for any storage or delivery charges because it wasn't specifically in the will. I thought that was a bitter decision 
and hurtful and unnecessary, but I couldn't enforce that obligation on the estate to do that. The general rule would be, yes, you're entitled to the personal property, and the executor is going to say, you have to come and get it. And probably will, if, if it's as bitter as this particular case was, say, you have a deadline to come get it and move it out and hire a moving company and do that. Very unfortunate set of circumstances and has created my desire to put that obligation on the estate in my documents. That, that raises an issue with respect to the cost and value of these things, Spalding, and, and it seems to me to be a segue to, to have you talk a little bit about things like storage costs, the costs of disposing of things, you know, whether it's, it's the fees you charge if, or if they're going to be auctioned, what a typical auctioneer's fee might be. And I'm wondering if you have any rules of thumb for our listeners in terms of if you have a, a piece of property that needs to be auctioned or sold, however it's done, let's put aside eBay and things like that. What kind of numbers in terms of percentages off of the appraised value might the net, net, net be once all is said and done? Well, today, just considering the state of the market, I often recommend to my clients, and, and Roger mentioned this earlier, you know, the value often is in use. So really, when you have that conversation with the children and say, can any of you use these items? Let's not, don't think about value in terms of what we're going to get can you use these things in your home? Everybody needs a chest of drawers. I know you might not go out and buy a beautiful bowfront chest of drawers for your house from England in the early 19th century, but your kid needs a chest of drawers. It doesn't have to come from Ikea. Can you use these items? And when you say to the children, this is your last chance, often somebody will speak up and items will start to flow out of the house. For all those items that people really do not want, there are different market levels that these items should be considered for. If they are high-end antiques, if they are valuable works of fine art, then maybe they do need to go uh, to places like New York, where Sotheby's and Christie's can reach an international audience to get the most money for those items. Often, it's not the case. We're looking to sell these things at a regional auction house level, the estate sales level, even a family-run estate sales. If you send something to New York, their Christie's Sotheby's is probably going to take at least 20%. That's an, uh, that is a term that is negotiable. So you should always be ready to um, fight for your client when it comes to trying to get those numbers down. And I often do that sort of as in an advisor position for estates that are looking to dispose of items. If you are going to have a, an estate sale, the commission for the estate sales company can range from 40% on down. Usually it's around 30%. There's so many different platforms that we didn't have 10 years ago because of the internet. So even a regional auction house like Ehlers and Ogletree, Robert Ehlers was scheduled to be here today. They can reach an international audience through the internet. So when he has a sale in his, in his space in Atlanta, he might have people bidding from countries all over the world. And that wasn't the case 10 years ago. It used to be about who was in the room. And now with the internet, the whole wide world can be in the room. And so that changes things. Uh, there are also estate sales companies that almost exclusively work through eBay. 
They photograph everything, they put it up on eBay, and it gets to a much wider audience than the people who may have come by on a Sunday afternoon, wandered through the house, be willing to spend a little bit of money at an estate sale. In preparing, doing a little research for this program, I stumbled across a couple of businesses that appear to not only have the estate sale on site, but at the same time have put a large number of items on the web as well, which goes to exactly what you're saying, opening up uh, for more opportunities to bid or, or, or price it and presumably get, get what might be the closest market value for those items. The estate sales market has changed a lot in the last uh, 10 years. There are on-site sales. There's now estate sales companies who gather up a few estates, sort of creating a critical mass. So when they have a sale at their warehouse, Often you get uh, many more interested parties because you've got five or six estates that are being sold at once. And then, like you said, making it easy for people to find and buy these items is what the internet has done. So whether it's on eBay or at an auction house, suddenly the whole world uh, can find things that you know may have just been tucked away in, in grandmother's study. On that point, I remember reading that for certain items, a platform like eBay actually brought prices of things down because in some instances people realized that X was not as valuable because all of a sudden there are 200 people trying to sell the same thing on eBay. It, it, it sort of brought some clarity to the market in terms of accuracy as to either rarity or, or whatever the case may be, which is, you know, for me, sort of an interesting revelation. Well, look at Hummel's. Y'all remember mm -hmm. those German porcelain dolls? I, I'm, I may have some of those in my future on exactly this type of topic. <laughs> so Beanie Babies? Beanie Babies. Uh, all of these things where there was this sort of mass hysteria to own them, while at the same time the suppliers were happy to continue to make more and more high demand, unlimited supply. And then 10, 20 years goes by and well, I paid a lot of money for these at the time. Let's see what we can get. And suddenly you go to eBay and it's just flooded with these items that will not sell for even a dollar. The internet can be a great leveler when it comes to, to values for things like that. And Dude. is that be the internet is flooded because the Gen Xers and the millennials didn't want to say no to grandma and grandpa, so they took them and then they turned around and sold them on eBay. That's right. <laughs> and that happens all the time, which can be scary for the grandparents when they find out that they did sell their Hummel collection for $20. The only other thing I, I think I can add on this is to the extent that you're aware that your client purchased, for example, a piece of art from a gallery that specialized in that particular artist, sometimes that may be the best place to go because that gallery is aware of people who want to buy uh, that particular artist and and will take that back. Yes, there is a cost factor that is likely to be 20% or more if they resell it, but that gallery may have a better handle on the value of that particular artist's work. And I'll just uh, say private sales are usually our, when we're advising someone who's trying to sell something that is of significant value, private sales are a controlled environment. If you can sell it to a dealer or another collector for a specific price, there's less risks than if you are selling it at auction. Consigning it with a gallery, like you said, is the next step because, uh, again, it's a controlled environment, less risk. And then often we sort of work our way down the chain down to auctions and things like that. So there are lots of different possibilities for disposition, especially if you have items that are still in demand. 
Well, I think we've learned a lot today about how to dispose of personal property and think about it and most especially talk about it. And um, I'd like to ask each of you one last question, very important question. If you would please tell us, give us your contact information, uh, your website, your social media connections so that our listeners can learn how to get in touch with you. We'll start with you, Spalding. Well, again, my name is Spalding Nix, and I have uh, a gallery in Buckhead in Atlanta. Our number is 404-841-7777. You can learn a lot about our art advisory and appraisal services on our website at spaldingnixfineart.com. Thank you. Happy to have you here. And Roger? Uh, I practice law uh, with another law firm, which is Wagner, Johnston, and Rosenthal. So my office number goes through their main line, which is 404-261-0500. The website with my information is wjrlaw.com, and my email address is rak at wjrlaw.com. So I'd be happy to be in contact with anybody that wishes to speak to me about these things. Thank you, Roger. As we are wrapping up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Our topic today has been, Do the Children Want Our Antiques, Personal Property, and Your Estate Plan? For more information about Gesselitz Frankel, please go to our website at gesselitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag WealthMatters. Our guests today were Roger Kirschenbaum, shareholder of Roger Kirschenbaum PC, and Spalding Nicks, owner of Spalding Nicks Fine Art. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X. (music) 